Good morning. Steve here for the Natural Curiosity Project on a cold winter morning in the woods near my house. You know, just about every day of the week I leave the house very early in the morning and I head out for a long walk in the woods. Living in Vermont as we do, it's cold. I mean, like 11 degrees when I left the house this morning. It also means snow. You can hear it crunching, I think, under my boots. And because we're so far north, the sun actually doesn't make its appearance until sometime around 7 a.m. or so. It's still dark right now. And by 5 p.m., it's dark again. Sorry, I just tripped over a log. In fact, just north of where we live, there's a sign on the freeway that marks the 45th parallel, which means that we're halfway between the equator and the North Pole, living where we are. I come out here every day to get a little exercise, but even more than that, I do it to kind of maintain my sense of wonder. Walking in the woods always reminds me just how many things actually do that. For example, we have these little critters up here. I'm looking at them right now. I can see them. They look like, uh, they look like little specks of pepper. They're called snow fleas, and they live in depressions around the snow at the base of trees here in the forest. But let me go back to what I just said. These things are really tiny, you know, the size of a speck of pepper. So how come they don't freeze solid in a fraction of a second? I know I would. Here's another one. I'm wrapped up in a long sleeve wool shirt, and I have a fleece over that and a down jacket on top of that, and a ski hat on my head. You hear that chickadee calling above me there? He's tiny. He weighs about as much as four pennies. He's covered in feathers, which is an advantage, but his legs and feet are completely bare. So why doesn't his lower body freeze? Why don't his legs and feet freeze? There's a stream that runs through the woods here and there's a little wooden footbridge that crosses it. I can see minnows down there in the water. I stop and look over the edge. Yep, they're there. The water's moving. I mean, it hasn't frozen yet, you know, but it's still dangerously cold. And yet, I look down there, and there's a school of minnows, no bigger than french fries, and they're just as happy as they could be swimming around in this ice-cold water. How do they do that? I mean, how do they adapt? How do they just take it in stride when the water goes from the sort of cool that we have in the summertime to this, this time of year? You know, my friend Roger Boughton, who lives over in the UK, is a world-class wildlife sound recordist. His work is just gorgeous. And last year, just for fun, he took a contact microphone, which is a microphone that you actually use, but it has to be in contact with whatever it is that you're recording. Otherwise, it doesn't pick very much up. Anyway, he attached a contact mic to the trunk of a tree in the springtime, and he recorded the sound of sap rising in that tree. It made me realize that trees are hydraulic. I'd never really thought about that before. I mean, here, I'm going to pull in that recording and let you listen to it for a couple of seconds.
There are a few evergreens in this forest. I'm standing between two of them right now. But most of the trees are deciduous. That means that every autumn, the stems that attach the leaves to the trees become corky. And the leaves begin to drop to the forest floor, creating this really beautiful mosaic of reds and yellows and browns and a few greens. Right? But why do they do that? I mean, what makes them wake up one day and go, time to do it. Time to drop to the ground. I mean, who knows? They're beautiful. And the sound of leaves crunching under my boots during that time of year is great. What we do know is that every spring, the trees mysteriously come back to life. It's pretty amazing, really. Buds form at the tips of all the twigs. Flowers and leaves burst open. And magically, the forest canopy is once again green and lush. How? I mean, how does that happen? Unfortunately, and sometimes I think a little bit sadly, we do know how all these things happen. We know, for example, that a lot of amphibians and insects, like my snow fleas and frogs and turtles, infuse their bloods and tissues with a special protein that prevents them from freezing rock solid and being damaged by the ice crystals. It's called an antifreeze protein. And by the way, snow fleas are actually called springtails. And in fact, if you go to YouTube and search for springtails springing, it'll take you to a video that I shot a couple of years ago of snow fleas bouncing happily around in the snow, just happy as clams. Birds like that chickadee above my head don't get cold feet because of a special circulatory system adaptation that limits the flow of blood to their legs and other extremities, ensuring that the warmest blood stays in their core where it's most important. And believe it or not, there's no blood flow at all to their legs or their feet because a special adaptation of their system makes it unnecessary. They don't need it down there. And what about trees? Well, the forest canopy is the largest solar panel that has ever been created. I mean, think about it. Trees suck water out of the ground through their roots. They suck carbon dioxide out of the air through their leaves, and they absorb sunlight from the sky. And then they combine them, and through the magic of photosynthesis, they create the complex sugars that feed the forest. Now, if that isn't alchemy or some kind of transmutation, I don't know what is. And, you know, air, water, and sunlight. Holy cow. You know, I can't help but think about the early days of humanity when science, such as it was, believed in something called spontaneous generation. For example, in the 7th century, most people believe that, no joke now, if you put a pair of sweaty underwear and a handful of wheat in a jar and left it for 21 days, it would, in fact, generate mice spontaneously. That's where mice came from, according to these early people. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. And in fact, as recently as the 17th century, people believed that maggots just basically appeared sort of magically on rotting meat. Right? They, they had no concept of flies laying eggs and so on. I mean, Galileo, I mean, Galileo of all people, 
believed in astrology. And Sir Isaac Newton, who at one point was in charge of the mint in the UK, he believed in transmutation. He was on a constant, never-ending quest to figure out how to turn lead into gold. Pretty good skill if you were in charge of the mint, wouldn't you say? I mean, to me, that's pretty cool. He believed in this thing called the Philosopher's Stone that would do that for you. I mean, even Carl Linnaeus, who gave us the naming system that we still use today for all living things on the planet, had a category in his system called Animalia Paradoxa. And this was a category for the so-called mythical beasts that he knew were out there, but that he hadn't found yet, like multi-headed hydra and chimera and the phoenix. You know, I consider myself to be something of a scientist because of my background in biology. And I do revere what science has done for us in terms of helping us, you know, defeat disease, create elegant communication systems that girdle the planet and reach for the stars. In spite of that, though, the fact that we know so much about how things work sometimes makes me a little bit sad. You know, there was a time when magic and mysticism ruled the world because those were the only things we had to explain the unexplainable, the miraculous, wondrous things that we call life. Some cultures still believe, and in a lot of ways, I envy them. Arthur C. Clarke, the author of, among other things, the 2001 Space Odyssey series, Childhood's End and Rendezvous with Rama, once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So many of the technologies that we have today and that we largely take for granted, things like CRISPR, gene splicing, the internet and the World Wide Web, space flight, the space station, video conferencing, mobile communications, as far as I'm concerned, they're all indistinguishable from magic. I mean, can you explain how any of them work? I can't. I can't even explain trees. I call that magic, and I'm glad we have it. And speaking of magic, I'm going to go over here and sit on this log for a little while to listen to birds. Thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.